Okay, I can do, I can do the jingle. Then we start. I thought it was going to fade out and it just got noisier. <laughs> no, it will end now. Now, welcome to Plants and Pipettes, guys. I literally dance every single time I cut up this intro. Meow, 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 meow. <laughs> welcome. Hi. Um, Hi. Good to have you back. It's nice to do another episode. Mm-hmm. We're up to episode, we're not sure, four, uh, five? Yeah, four, four. I just wrote it in the title of this um Somebody Project asked me before file. how many we've done. I was like, oh, we've done like six or seven now. And I'm like, no, that's only in your head, Tegan. That's, that's not a thing that's happened. <laughs> and we only pub- published one so far. So Shh, you... don't tell them about the secrets. Don't let them in behind the curtain. Like, okay. maintain no, the mystery. Is, uh, whenever you listen to this podcast, it's happening live. Live, live, guys. Like, we get a little notification when you hit play. And then we have to, like, run up to your audio equipment. And, and we, we don't have any notes. We just do it all from our head. Exactly. Um, and the most we're multitasking thing. perfectly while we're doing it. The most annoying thing is when they hit pause and we have to like stop mid-sentence and then remember <laughs> and then when like four hours later they hit play again we have to like run back and the continue peeing, our sentence. The peeing has been an issue. <laughs> okay, welcome to Plants and Pipettes as we said. Um, today I'm going to talk about a paper which is involved in sensing for seeds for when they should germinate and yarn. I will be talking about junk DNA and how it is not really junk. This like makes me think of dark angel this tv series do you, do you remember this <laughs> no i haven't seen this they ever. basically i think they they edited the junk dna so they like potentiated humans ah. by like making all of that extra 90 percent of non-coding dna into something amazing or <laughs> i think something like this i don't know again one of these stories of like we're only using 10 percent of our potential it was something like that yeah lucy is the worst movie i've ever watched like yeah. historically ever <laughs> that's why I never watched it because you told me that and <gasps> yes. I was afraid to just get angry in front of my TV and I, I watched that like on a plane ride like a 24 hour plane ride to Australia and even then I was angry at the time that I lost like usually like every second that you waste on a plane to Australia you're like hell yes but this I was like no I'm just <laughs> I'm mad about my life <laughs> yeah so this is about how plants only use 10% <laughs> of their uh, their potential and these research unlocked the rest and now you should run for and your life. And now we should talk about <laughs> mitochondria. Okay, so um, my paper for today is called Mitochondrial Small Heat Shock Protein uh, Mediates Seed Germination via Thermal Sensing. And okay. it's by Weimar et al. It came out in PNAS um, this year, uh, this month, I think. So This sounds hot. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> uh, <laughs> drum roll. We need a drum roll. Sound effect. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Next, next time on the soundboard, we have a drum roll. Okay. So, um, if we talk about like seed germination, we know that what actually classifies as germination for a seed is when the radical emerges. So this is like when the little tip bit comes oh, yeah. out, yeah. and this ultimately becomes the roots of the plant, and then ultimately the the hypocotyls come out. It puts its leaves out. I, I'm mimicking a plant here, guys. Yeah, it's really sad that this is like an audio medium, but yeah. But you have to imagine that Tegan does like a perfect impression. And was I a monocot or a dicot? A dicot. I had two cotyledons coming out just then. Okay. Um, anyway, germination doesn't happen like immediately for most plant species. So there's something called seed dormancy, which is... Uh, seed dormancy is when seeds like t- uh, take a while before they germinate and they sometimes require certain um, conditions to, to trigger the germination, right? Yeah, and we'll get to that. But yeah, dormancy is basically when they pause before coming alive or not coming alive, but actually so it's germinating. Continuing growth. Yeah, 
And in order to break the dormancy, there's basically this contrast um, between two factors. And one is the growth of the embryo inside the seed. Mm -hmm. And this is pressing against the basically mostly physical or mechanical pressure of the outside, which is keeping the embryo in. So you need the embryo to overcome the pressure from outside. Yeah, like popcorn. Yes, like popcorn, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that helpful analogy. Um, so this is something that happens in both um, animals and plants. It's quite conserved. So um, even in animals, you have like invertebrates, this straightening and elongation of the notochord. So it becomes like the vertebrate, mm -hmm. um, invertebrate species. Um, and this is kind of uh, in interaction and contrast with some extracellular matrix, which is like pressing and stuff. So it's conserved across lots of kingdoms. In many angiosperms, you have um, the both the endosperm. So this is kind of outside of the embryo, the kind of soft bit of the seed, the kind of bits which give the nutrients. And then also a tester. So this is kind of the shell of the seed, which is mm -hmm. a lot harder um, and it's dead. It's not alive like the endosperm. And this acts as like a physical barrier against pests coming in. Also like protecting, keeping the um, seed like moist and keeping everything good in and bad things out basically. Um, so again, you need this growth of the internal that then breaks through these boundaries. So both the tester yeah. and the inside the endo endosperm. Okay. Yeah. So as somebody coming from Australia, when I think of germination, I tend to think of water because for us, like especially if you go a bit into the desert, you have all of these plants which only spring up when there's water. The water goes into the plant, the plant, the, the seed, sorry, the seed swells with the water and kind of bursts through and opens up. Yeah. Obviously in Germany, it's a little bit different. I mean, yeah, I, I just want to say like in many cases, you know that as well when you grow anything on your kitchen counter, um, also most seeds you have to soak in water for a bit before they start to germinate and it's the same process. But in Germany or in general in places that are not hot and arid like Australia, you have this cold phase that is required. So they, they sort of, the seeds sense the, the, the cold and um, they need a cold period to be activated. And you think of, of like winter, they wait for winter to be over so that it can germinate. And we in the lab, we often have to mimic that then, and we have to put our plates with the seeds on them in the cold room for 48 hours so they get this cold shock, sort of. Mm -hmm. So the cold is basically keeping them from not germinating and it's the, the warming up, which is then being a signal to say, let's go. And of course, water is also involved. Water is always needed, but um, temperature then plays a second very large role in yeah. the germination of seeds and when they actually come. Um, just as a bit of background to this paper, there's previously been some research, I think in Arabidopsis, into um, which factors, which proteins might be involved in controlling the timing of um, germination. And now I want to introduce you to my favorite dog. It's dog favorite one dog. is the protein. Ha 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 ha. I'm a cat person. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm yeah, not that's sorry. That's why I was so confused. <laughs> Tegan. dog? How disgusting. We don't allow dogs on this podcast. Um, Bar yeah. from dog one. Dog one. <laughs> dog one stands for delay of germination one. Um, and basically they found that when dog one protein was knocked out, you got completely non-dormant um, Arabidopsis. So everything tried to germinate like straight away. And apart from basically this, which le uh, led to uh, reduced seed longevity, there wasn't really any other phenotypes of the dog. So they saw, you know, it's directly involved in germination. Um, and they found that it was involved in gibberellin hormone metabolism. So gibberellin is like a plant hormone that's been linked to germination and also general growth of the plants. Um, and it also um, had something to do with temperature 
but they didn't know the mechanism of that. So they could find out that dog one was involved um, in expressing genes required for weakening of the test star, the Mm -hmm. encasing the embryo. Um, They also found that dog one was um, conserved across different species. So they put this Arabidopsis dog one into another Brassicaceae, so kind of the same family, um, and they overexpressed it in this this le- lepidium. Lepidium? I'm not sure. It's a crest. Uh-huh. Um, and the crest usually doesn't have dormant seeds. And when they overexpress the Arabidopsis protein, the dog one protein in this um, other species, okay. they actually force the seeds to have this dormant phase. Um, okay. Yeah. So basically, they have this information about a different gene, but they actually don't know how temperature sensing is involved so they have this link to temperature they have this link to dormancy but they didn't know anything about it so that's kind of basically where the the um germination and the dormancy literature is at the moment um yeah so this group kind of was looking into a much more mechanical way of how um dormancy can be interrupted okay so they just to understand they what they hypothesize at this point or maybe what i hypothesize at this point is this if this is involved in hardening of the shell um it sort of made the shell a little bit softer when you take it out in arabidopsis and so like the force that works against the germination is reduced and on the other hand in this other species then it gets harder and it takes more force to get through is that, or is that too early to say that already? No, that's that's basically the mechanism. So um, this was actually previous research. I'm going to talk about a different path. Well, not necessarily a different pathway, but a different um, target gene um, today. But yeah, this definitely plays into it. So the, the hardening, how hard the cell is. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, and just a little bit more background on seed germination. One of the earliest things that happens when a seed becomes active, so it has this dormant stage, and when it activates, when it um, takes in the water or imbibes, one of the first things that happened is that the mitochondria start to develop. So you have kind the of... powerhouses of the cell. Oh, God. You have um, kind of pro-mitochondria, which are like these pre-mitochondria um, in the, the seed and they're metabolically quiescent, so they're not really doing much. And when um, the water comes into the seed and they start to develop, they become mature um, mitochondria. And this is one of the first steps of breaking dominancy and germination. And we know also that if you disrupt the development from the pro-mitochondria into real mitochondria you also disrupt germination so just keep in mind mitochondria is heavily involved Mm. in the germination process okay so this group uh had a look at gossypium hirsutum can you say that hirsutum hirsutum gossypium (laughs) hirsutum it's cotton guys i don't know how to say it i've never met somebody who worked on cotton or if i have i haven't asked them how to pronounce this (laughs) hirsutum so it's pronounced cotton it's cotton. Okay, so um, one of the first things they wanted to do was actually make sure that cotton does have the same changes in um, germination based on temperature. So they did some basic profiling where they just grew cotton seeds at different temperatures and they found indeed that, as people already kind of knew, below about 12 degrees, the cotton doesn't really germinate. Um, between 20 and 36, it has quite a nice germination. In fact, the germination correlates quite well with how warm it is. Um, between those temperatures and above 44 degrees it just stops germinating as well which is why you should always put your seeds in the ground in spring and not in the height of summer Ah. (laughs) Um, okay so they were actually building off previous research which looked at which proteins were in already actively expressed during seed germination so this is from some other publications um 
and they focused on a family of heat shock proteins. So heat shock proteins um, are proteins that, uh, by, as the name suggests, they, they get activated when there is a heat shock, when temperature rises. And also other, other shocks as well they've yeah. found, so light and yeah. things so like that. So often in general stress responses you find heat shock proteins. And what they do is that they um, often, not all of them, but uh, many of them act as um, sort of stabilizing agents uh, that help. Uh, chaperones. Chaperones is uh, the right word. <laughs> I just missed there. Um, so they, they keep all the other stuff in the cell a bit more intact. So they help them to not break down because if you... Do you know that when you cook an egg, when temperature rises, proteins break down um, and coagulate or get destroyed. And that's why an egg white turns from transparent to white. And a cell doesn't want that to happen. And so these chaperones, they sort of attach to some critical proteins and make sure that they don't turn into like cooked egg. Yeah. Um, yeah, perfect. Um, so the group in this study, they looked at the previous study and they found that a certain amount of a bunch of these heat shock proteins were actively expressed during seed germination and they were particularly interested in something that they called GH standing for Gossypian Hirsutum um, HSP heat shock protein 24.7 so I'm just going to call it HSP 24.7 from now on um, it's one of the heat shock proteins it's um, a very in the catchy family. <laughs> yeah trendy uh, and they found that this guy was found in the endosperm after imbition so after the seeds have been put into the water kind of to start um, okay. absorbing and what was really cool is when they started studying this um, gene, they found that um, HSP 24.7 had really high expression correlation with temperature changes. Um, the R value was 9, 0.99, which is like pretty much one-to-one. -one yeah. So just for our non-science friends, like uh, a correlation means if you tr plot like both curves um, and if one curve goes up then and the other curve also goes up and these so two curves follow each other then you have a high correlation and this and we measure that with this uh, coefficient it's called r and the closer to one it is the better this is so this one with like 0.99 yeah so it's pretty much like it's hard to get any better correlation in biology than that mm -hmm. so um between and this was between this this nice um 20 degrees and 36 degrees where there was like a, an ideal temperature and an increase in the germination so you have this Increase in temperature leading to almost linear increase in, in germination of the, the cotton. And at the same time, there's an increase in the expression of 24.7. So yeah. it became a kind of very suspicious candidate. Yeah. Mm. But as correlation doesn't imply <laughs> causation, they had to do more experiments, didn't they? They did. So they did some genetic experiments. They created both overexpression lines. So this is where you um, force the plant to make more of the protein basically all the time, generally. Um, and they also made knockdown lines. So they decreased the amount of the protein that the plant had. Um, and unsurprisingly, they found that the knockdown lines, where there was less of the protein, had delayed germination. Um, and the overexpression lines, which had more of the protein, had a much more rapid um, germination. So this suggests that the protein plays a positive role, that the amount of it increases, mm -hmm. then you have more chance of germination, which was already suggested by this correlation. Um, they also looked at the different response during, temp during different temperatures. And as I said already, the wild type plant, it had um, faster germination at higher temperatures within that window. So at 36 degrees, it took 40 hours for half of the plants to germinate, the seeds, sorry. And at um, 20 degrees, a lower temperature, it took almost 86 hours um, for half plants to germinate. 
um, when they looked at the antisense line, they found that it had a very delayed germination, um, but it was always delayed. Whereas when they looked at the overexpressing line, they found that it had um, a fast germination, which kind of mimics this high temperature mm -hmm. um, of the response. So again, the more you have, the the more rapid yeah. the... Um, yeah. yeah, so you mimic with these two lines sort of the both endpoints of this correlation line, right? So you have sort of, not, yeah, not exactly, like but, but you sort of introduce a lot of the protein uh, as if it would be very warm, as it would be like the warm optimum, um, or you take away so much so that it's almost like the cold st uh, step, and then you see, independent then of the temperature, you see the response. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, um, so they also tried like looking, playing around a bit with these hormones. So as we said, there was these kind of downstream mm -hmm. hormones um, which are involved in germination. They applied abscitic acid and the gibberellins that I already mentioned. And they also um, <laughs> added, oh man, something which my computer has corrected into fluoridone, which I think is called fluoridone, but thanks autocorrect. Um, but it's basically <laughs> an inhibitor of AVA biosynthesis. And okay. they said that there wasn't really any changes in the overexpressing line, the the knockdown line or the wild type when okay. they added the hormones, which means that the pathway is uh, probably independent of oh, this yeah. or yeah. it's not so important. Um, okay, so which actually factors are changing? You've got this overexpression and you've got like more rapid germination, but why, like mechanistically, how is that happening? Um, and they looked first at these, these factors that might contribute. So the embryo growth, which is coming from inside versus the sort of physical mechanical repression from the testa and the endosperm. And they did a few experiments, which they put in the supplementary materials, which just showed basically that the embryo growth wasn't changed in any of the mutants. So they instead looked at the um, changes in the resistance from outside, and they found that there was changes in the puncture force of the endosperm. Okay. So this is basically how easy it is to puncture the endosperm. Um, and obviously the higher it is, the harder it, it is to puncture it, which means it's hard for the yeah, the for seed to break free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and they found that in the control plants between this 20 and 36 degree, this ideal germination zone, there was a huge drop in the puncture force um, of the endosperm in the wild type. So basically the endosperm is really hard to break through for the, for the embryo and then the temperature becomes right and then it becomes much easier. Suddenly like all of the mechanical, not all of it, but a lot of the mechanical pressure is so alleviated. It sort of like softens up at the right temperature window. Yeah. Um, and then of course they looked at their mutants and they found that the overexpressor always had a bit lower than the control. So it was always a bit easier for it to break free, um, while the antisense had consistently very high puncture force of the endosperm. So they then said, of course, this protein, this heat shock protein 24.7, has a role in how easy it is to break mm -hmm. out of the endosperm and therefore somehow involved in like decaying this endosperm. Okay, so how does it actually do this? They went into a really in-depth and really nicely sciencedd um, characterization of this protein. So first they wanted to see what this heat shock protein could be interacting with to see how it was helping break down the endosperm. And they did yeast to hybrid, which Yoram can explain because he's done it in the lab. Yeah, yeast to hybrid, and um, there's also like related methods there. Um, they all have in common that um, you have an activator protein um, and you split that in half. 
and then you fuse your protein A and your protein B that you want to test if they have something in common. Um, you fuse that to the two halves of this activator uh, protein. And then when protein A and B find each other because they do something together, then also the two halves of this activator protein can sort of get together and like magnets, they attach to each other and become an active form of this activator protein. And then there's some sort of reporter that is triggered by that. And that can be many different things. That can be something like antibiotic resistance. That can be a color, for example, for um, for for a staining. So you grow that on a specific your your yeast, and all that happens in yeast. You grow that on a specific medium, and then they are blue or white, for example. And you can distinguish if you see an effect or not. And then you do lots and lots of controls, and uh, in the end, you know, or you have a, an idea if these two things actually work together or not. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, these days there are really large libraries where you can basically run your gene of interest against like thousands and thousands of yeah. other potentially interacting things. Um, luckily for them, they were looking in the mitochondria. Maybe it's well, it's a number of things that it could be interacting with. And they also found a positive interactor. So with their yeast 2 hybrid, they found that their heat shock protein 24.7 interacts with um, CCMC. And CCMC is a maturation complex, I think that's the MC part, of cytochrome C. And cytochrome C is one of the parts of the mitochondrial electron transport chain. So this is something that's conserved in like mammals, in, in all organisms. Um, it's part of the respiration and cytochrome C moves electrons from complex, I think, three to four of the... Um, I should know that, but I, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to say anything wrong now. But it's involved in the electron transport and it's... Um, yeah, this is sort of at the core of energy metabolism in in any organism that has mitochondria. Okay, so they thought that their heat shock protein might be interacting with um, this cytochrome C maturation complex, but they, they did many things to confirm this, and this is really amazing. They first did GFP to check that both could be localized in the mitochondria. So this is where you... Um, tag your protein, you add a fluorescent protein, green fluorescent protein to the back of it and then look in the cell to see where the green is, basically where the protein is expressed. They did this both for um, oh, for, the, for their protein of interest, sorry. Then they used um, bimolecular fluorescent complementation, so BIF-C. Yeah, which um, is similar to the yeast uh, with the activator protein, but instead of having an activator protein that does a reporter, you have a fluorescent protein that is cut in half and then when it attaches together again, um, it starts glowing and there is a short window where that is even um, depending on how much of the interaction happens you get like stronger or weaker signals so just another way to f- to show that these two things might be in contact with each other so they yeah they they split the fluorescence between half of it on the back of their hspg uh, protein sorry and half of it on the back of the site c maturation complex and they found that they probably did interact they then also did reciprocal um, co-immunoprecipitation where they use one protein to pull down. So yeah. basically... You, you sort of attach your protein to a solid phase or something that you can sort of hold that can be magnetic beads or many other things. And then you wash the the thing that the, the, the mix of proteins that you want to test. And so in this case, like an extract from mitochondria, you sort of wash that and you expect that the stuff that interacts, it sticks. And then you can analyze that later on. And reciprocal means, in this case, you do this from both sides. So you have first the heat shock factor, right? That's mm-hmm. the name. Heat that shock the heat shock protein. Um, you you hold that and see what attaches to it. And then you take the CCM protein and do the same and see. And then if you see from both sides that the, the 
uh, other protein gets held back, you have a pretty good idea that these might actually have something to do with each other. Yeah, and I mean, then they also even cut the proteins into different parts to see which of the heat shock proteins, sorry, was binding um, to this cytochrome C maturation complex. They then found where they were um, localized by doing um, density separation, so to see if they were in the membranes or not, because they know that um, the maturation complex is normally found in the membrane when it's functional, um, but actually the heat shock protein was not found in the membrane. Um, and they even found what else, whether or not um, the HSP competes with something else and how how well it competes, basically. So mm. this is because the maturation complex is known to form a complex with some other things. Mm. And it needs to be interacting with these other things in order to have its function, which is to make the cytochrome C mature, to basically process the cytochrome C. So this kind of gave them the hypothesis that the heat shock protein was holding on um, to the maturation complex in the in the um, soluble fractions, so in the matrix um, of the mm -hmm. the mitochondria, and not letting it go into the membrane with its interacting partner and not doing its job. So it's basically preventing it from letting cytochrome C mature. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that it's holding back, like it's stopping one complex from doing its job. Yeah, and, and that this is concentration dependent, right? So this is when they did this, like trying mm -hmm. to see how well it binds in contrast to the other thing. It means like you need a certain amount to have that sort of resistance builder or like this this stopping force or this like pausing of this other complex. And when it sort of gets there's less of the heat shock protein, like the complex can be can be going into the membrane. Yeah, I mean basically the heat shock protein holds on to the cytochrome C maturation factor keeps it in, in the soluble part. Um, if it wasn't there, the maturation factor would go straight into the membrane, link up with its body and make cytochrome C. So mm -hmm. when the heat shock protein's there, it's not making cytochrome C. And as we said, cytochrome C is a key component in um, the like respiration function of the mitochondria. So it's basically preventing um, the cytochrome oxidase pathway from functioning properly in the mitochondria. Yeah. And that has some big downstream effects because this energy metabolism is then held back and so the plant can't make no, this much. No, the biggest downstream effect in this case that is relevant for seed germination is you get production of ROS. So when you make ah. a, a blockage to these electron transport pathways, both in the mitochondria but also in the, in the chloroplast where you have um, also electron transport pathway, you basically block the pipeways and electrons get out somehow yeah. and they make reactive oxygen species so and this is a very it's a damaging molecule because it can oxidize all types of things in the cell and this destroys them but it's also a signaling molecule because then there's other parts that sense it so it's a very important thing so whenever ROS is made or um, ROS is taken care of has usually some some bigger effects to it and so yeah and one of its damaging things one of the things it can damage is the endosperm so it actually can okay help the seed the, the embryo get out of the seed that's cool yeah so they looked of course in the overexpressing in um, antisense lines and they found that there was reduced levels of cytochrome C in in the um, overexpressing line mm -hmm. and reciprocal the other way around. Um, and they also found that when there was reduced levels of cytochrome C, there was also more ROS. Um, they also tried using a um, ROS suppressor or actually it specifically um, suppresses a type of ROS, which is hydrogen peroxide um, from building up. And they found that this 
delays seed germination. So if you okay. stop the, the ROS, you don't get seed germination, um, which then again supports this idea that ROS really does have a positive role in endosperm weakening. Okay, and just as an aside, they also looked at the structure of the cell wall in their different mutants, and they found that um, the overexpressive mutant basically had um, more fragile cell walls in opposition of um, the antisense mutant, which had sort of more um, like stronger cell yeah, walls. More this, robust. Exactly. Um, uh, finally, I would say they found that this um, heat shock protein was conserved and they actually found that it had conserved function. So they also made overexpressors in both Arabidopsis, which is our model plant, and Solanum leucopersicum, which is tomato. And they found that when they overexpressed the heat shock protein in both of these, they both had faster germination mm -hmm. than they would normally have. Mm -hmm. um, which is sort of intuitive, right? If, you, if it acts on a very conserved protein, like the cytochrome C is very conserved uh, in the mitochondria. So probably its maturation com complex also is found in many other places. So it's sort of intuitive that the thing that interacts with the maturation complex is also likely to be conserved. Of course, this is not like you can't say that every time, but like in context of this entire image that they're painting here, it's it sort of it fits nice together. It fits nicely together yeah, that this it does is fit. And I mean, it's also it's in contrast somehow to the dog story. So I mean, yes, there are like the cytochrome C is conserved and stuff like this, but there's a lot of difference in in dormancies in different species. So with the dog one story, they found that they could actually make species that didn't have dormancy have have more dormancy so i don't know it would be mm. interesting to see if that also can happen here if you can um, move this guy around and but so far overexpressing of the gossypium heat shock protein in the arabidopsis and solanum seem to have a positive effect so. Mm. and so is do they say something if this is due to like if the ross production is what is weakening the cell wall i mean they they have to sort of more more abstract way of saying like it's it's more robust like more resistant to punctuation and stuff like that but did they look if this active this 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 ROS itself is the part that's damaging it um they did this hydrogen peroxide test basically so there's kind of it's not a direct evidence it's like a cause and effect evidence um what was unclear to me i wasn't sure they they looked at the cell wall structure and it wasn't clear if these had different cell wall structures because of the ROS directly or if there was a secondary thing that overexpressing this heat shock protein was doing. And I'm not sure how likely that is. I mean, it's, it's not like a transcription factory. It is like kind of chaperone-based protein. So maybe it's more likely that it's um, the ROS. But they actually said there was a different composition of the cell wall. And this seems to be something mm. more about like More complex and just damaging so, like oxidation of some things. But it seems to be a bit yeah, bigger than that. But these are not induced um, like overexpression or knockdowns they're like constitutive so it's changes that have happened from the whole plant's life cycle so maybe there's yeah. some like you know pleiotropic effects kind yeah. of secondary effects I, I wasn't really sure about that to be oh, honest okay just a quick correction um they didn't overexpress the cotton in the arabidopsis and the tomato they overexpressed the the ones belonging to those species so okay. overexpression of the arabidopsis in arabidopsis okay um, and they, they did that based on sequence similarity. So it's not 24.7, but in Arabidopsis, it's 23.5 and 23.6. But this is yeah. not super important. Um, yeah. Cool. Just as a, a quick summary, like we we still talk about seed dormancy as something that kind of affects the whole life of the plant. 
Um, because of course, like if you break dormancy too early, you end up having a frost and then you've just killed yourself because you start yeah. putting out shoots and then a cold day comes yeah. and you've just ruined your entire life. But there's a second um, importance which they raised in the article, which I, I want to mention, which is that seeds germinating at exactly the same time is very important for crops because yeah. we need that all of our seeds germinate at the same time, grow at the same time, so they can be harvested at the same time. So understanding something like this about how timing is affected in seed germination is really an important thing for us to maximize yep. crop yield potential and then maximize feeding the world, which <laughs> is what plant science really is all about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is also something we always did in the in the lab. Um, we did this cold shock to our Arabidopsis plates so that they can all germinate at the same time. So whatever we see, if we uh, we can sort of, if there is a growth retardation, if they grow slower than a comparison line, then we know it's not because the germination was offset, but they germinated at the same time. But then later on, we had a difference. Um, yeah, it so synchronizes everything up that it's yeah. like this shift from cold to, to warmth that they all feel at the same time. And yeah spring is here yeah nice that was a nice paper and i have to say especially the protein protein interaction part from like having used some of it myself and also like attending some some lectures on it it sounded like they really did it by the book like it's if if you would use a, a handbook for molecular biology where it says like this is how you do protein protein interactions i think is what they did in this paper because they did everything, everything yeah because all of them they come with like their, their rates of false positives and false negatives so you always have to be very careful when you do just one or two of these methods but by using so many um they actually got around that they can be very certain of what they see is, is real yeah and i have to say like i mean it's only a six page article i mean obviously with a lot of saps but who i left it until the last minute i was preparing this this morning so i'm sorry if i made some mistakes but it is very data heavy i mean it's just really like well done everything has been checked um a lot yeah. of experimentation going into that so a lot of work from the authors there and as always if you want to have a look yourself you can find the link to this paper in the show notes um, yep. you see that either in your podcast app in the um, there should be a place where episode notes uh, are shown or you just go to our website which is plantsandpipettes.com where you find the episode and there's also all the links there yeah um, and I would also um, from that I would draw your attention to figure 7 from the article itself because it basically um, shows a summary of the mechanism that they've described in this paper so it might be a little bit clearer to see how everything interacts together with the heat shock proteins and this maturation factor then leading to cytochrome uh, C which is not interacting with the like just go and have a look at the picture because it's a little bit hard to explain in words okay thank you very much wait why, why you turned my microphone off Something is wrong. I didn't touch anything. No way. Okay. <laughs> Your arm turned his own microphone off. Okay. I mean, I put an edit mark. technical guy. <laughs> okay. How, how did that happen? Maybe it was the cat that just jumped off me and I touched something weirdly. Okay. Now, just now. Blame so, the cat for yeah, everything. Everything. Like whatever mistake I'm doing now in my um, explanation of the next paper, it's because of the cat. <laughs> okay. So I will be talking um about the letter psi 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 um or junk dna or um a part of junk dna um yeah there's been um there's media work being done at the moment i'm taking photos <laughs> of him um so yeah the paper i want to talk about is the evolutionary origins of pseudogenes and their association with regulatory sequences in plants um which is by uh, Jinbao Xie, Xie Yingli, Xiaomin Liu, 
Jiang Zhao, Bailan Li, Perka Ingvarsson, that was easier for me, and Dikwen Zhang. I'm sorry for the way I pronounce these names, but I did my best. And it's um, uh, it's a paper from Plant Cell uh, from, from last month. And uh, depending on whenever you hear this, uh, it's last month when we record this. Um, yeah, and it's about junk DNA. And so to start this, I wanted to talk a little bit about things that are in the DNA because it's way more than just it's it's not that simple. So, what what things do we have in the DNA? Genes. We have genes in the DNA. Yeah, genes are the things that probably many people know about. These are the, the parts of the DNA that actually code for protein. Mm-hmm. Um, and the definition of genes over time changed a little bit, right? In the beginning, there was this strong dogma of having one gene per protein, and now we know that sometimes with like special cases, there can be many genes. Uh, a, a gene that can code for different variants of a protein. Um, there can be the same protein made by multiple genes if they exist in copies, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, so the story got a little bit more complicated the more we understood. But in general, a gene encodes for a protein. Um, and just here to to sort of sum up or like um, re- remind you of the. Um, basic biology um, a gene has a start and an end and it's sort of defining the borders of a gene on a dna sequence uh, which will come in uh, important a little bit later and then just to like the genes they are made into rna and rna is made into protein Um, and this is why we call them protein coding um, genes so i guess next up is non-coding rna yeah, and uh, the first, yeah, non-coding RNA, um, just to say like the, the how do we get all the genes that we have? So um, I think you have the number for the genes in Arabidopsis because you did it on... Oh God, it was... I'm sorry, I didn't prepare. You put me on the spot. There was 155,000 with some number, but I, I don't know. I'm very bad okay. with numbers. But it's like we have literally thousands and thousands of genes in most organisms. Um, 27,000 maybe? Yeah, yeah 27,000. And... Um, so how did we get all of these genes? Uh, didn't start with just 27,000 genes on the first day. So it happens through like gene duplica- uh, duplication. And then um, the duplicates are slowly evolving differently from the original genes. And so that's how you get like diversification and different types of genes and so on. And in a lot of species, it's not just like a single gene duplicating itself or being duplicated, but sometimes the whole genome just basically copies. So control C, control V, and you get like... Two yeah. times as much genome. And this is a very important point that we should keep in mind um, when we talk now about junk DNA. Um, so in the, I think around the 90s, I, I, the, the term junk DNA was used a lot. It was like when we had the first understandings of, of genomes and we had an idea how the DNA is organized and we had saw all the genes. And then um, we saw all the space between the genes because it's not that in a DNA you have like gene A directly followed by gene B directly followed by gene C but you have like massive spaces in between them so and there's already something that uh, you mentioned it's a non-coding RNA so what what examples do we have there do you know some specifically yeah so it's just like I I mean (laughs) like the name of one Bob Bob is the name of my favorite non-coding RNA I mean there's some structural RNAs um, like tRNAs Mm -hmm. um, that are not protein coding and then there is uh, ribosomes that are also made of RNA and they're often not counted into um, okay this is like the the non-MR non-protein coding genes RNA yeah, there they, we go. They don't they don't code for proteins, but they code for other pieces of RNA that are very important, 
for cell function. And which actually required to make the proteins from the, the mRNA, yes. right? The tRNA yeah. and the, the rRNA. And just as a little sidestep, um, some people believe, uh, some researchers believe that these RNA, structural RNAs or the ribosomes um, were the very first things that um, did molecular work in, in the first cells. So there, before there were proteins, there were, I read some hypothesis that it was just RNA uh, enzymes, sort of um, ribozymes that had uh, activity, catalytic activities, and then only later in evolution, it uh, sort of added the step of creating proteins from RNA. But this RNA is just a world hypothesis or something yeah. like this, yeah? And mm -hmm. it, it's not proven yet. Um, it's, it's one thing that's really hard to prove, but it's one of the, the possibilities of how life came to be. But this is just a sidestep. So RNA can not only code for genes, uh, for, for proteins, but it can also have on its own uh, some functionality. And then there's other things. There's a regulation with RNA. So there are the, the short interfering RNAs and there are longer interfering RNAs. And then there are micro RNAs. So these pretty much are all defined by length of them. So that ranges from just like a couple of nucleotides from like eight to 20 nucleotides are the smallest usually. Then you have short interfering RNAs. These are like several dozen uh, of nucleotides. And then you have these long ones that can be um, sometimes uh, up to uh, the length of a, of a gene, so several hundred base pairs long up stretches of RNA that have regulatory function. Although the, the, the long RNAs, as far as I know, they are not very well understood so far. I know that there's a lot of research going into like what are long non-coding RNAs doing. So sometimes when you, you read papers or look into this, you see this LNC RNA. This is like the long non-coding ones. And the short ones are often disrupting function of yeah. the coding. Like in your example from just now, the antisense was probably done with an antisense RNA. Mm -hmm. So there was a short piece of RNA created, uh, inserted into the, the cell, and then these RNAs can bind to the, the mRNA of a gene, and then this gene, this mRNA gets degraded. Um, and this happens also not only for in molecular labs, but this is something cells use to regulate gene expression. Um, so this is part of the junk DNA um, that's not junk, it has a function. And, um, but still there's a lot that we don't know about it. Like why, why does it still exist? Why, there's, why is there so much space between the genes? Why don't plants sort of, or in, organisms in general, try to just reduce the size of the genome? Because like, this is all, um, all the, the proteins, uh, the, the molecules have to be read, like the long, the long DNA strand um, has to be read by transcription factors that try to bind to it and so on. And if it would be smaller, you would think it might be more efficient to... <laughs> it's the argument of why. You should never yeah. ask the question why in biology. I mean, yeah. I mean, one argument for this is like, it's just kind of there as residual, right? Like you've had all this copying happen and there's just like kind of stuff left over and the genome hasn't sorted itself out yet. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a part of, of what they studied here. So what they studied are pseudogenes and... They, for some reason, I didn't really find out why they are always just abbreviated with the Greek letter psi. Um, so you always sounds like pseudo pseudo gene. Probably pseudo. Or maybe it's also pronounced psi. I I, I don't know. Um, psi uh, spelled out, and it's like a little pitchfork. Hey guys, call in. So <laughs> you read this paper, and there's always like this little pitchfork in the text, and it says like, ah, the pitchfork is a pseudogene. I had a look at the the abstract of the paper, and I found that the pitchfork was not more helpful than just writing the word pseudogenes yeah, all the time because for me every time i saw it it was so distracting i was like oh pitchfork oh pitchfork not at all and especially is like if sorry you know, we are ignorant 
Yeah, I couldn't. I, I tried to find why that is, but it seems to be like in this field of studying pseudogenes, they all agreed that this is the best way to do it. So they do it. Okay, but we should actually explain what a pseudogene is, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's something that looks like it could be a gene, but it's it's lost its function. Perhaps it doesn't have the right start codon, so it actually kind of be made into a protein, or something about it has basically degenerated that it's no longer. Yeah. It looks like it could be a real gene, but it's it's not really a real gene anymore. And it's coming back to the start and end thing that I said with the genes. So they might have, as you said, the, the start might be changed, but also they might have a stop codon. So um, um, way too early. So the part that says this is the end of the gene comes already after, I don't know, a dozen nucleotides. So when it should be after like 50 nucleotides or 500 or... Yeah. yeah. And so this, yeah, it's, it's truncated. It doesn't work anymore. Um, and yeah, these things, uh, so they, they happen from, they, they come from events like whole genome duplications. Um, so when just an entire chromosome is duplicated or entire genome is duplicated and suddenly you have two copies of, um, uh, of your, all of your genes, then um, mutations happen and some of them get mutated. And as long as there is another functional copy, there's no selection pressure to keep this gene intact. And so they slowly degenerate. Um, so they expected to evolve neutrally, as, uh, as I put it in the paper, which means that they, um, yeah, there is no selection pressure for or against them. They just collect mutations um, randomly and keep them, uh, and there is no a strong selection. So the idea is that normally, if a gene has a function, and if that function is needed for the health and the fitness of the plant, if a change was made within the gene, which basically stopped the gene from working or stopped it from working properly that would be selected against so the plants that had that mutation the cell would die or the whole plant would die and it wouldn't get passed on to the new cells or to the next generation so and this was shown to be true in human worm and fly the <laughs> three <pseudo> <laughs> the, the, the idea that pseudogenes um evolve neutrally that they don't okay they that don't no have a selection of normal genes basically yes. yeah and that's one of the ways you can you can tell a pseudogene right if you look over evolution you see that it's it's not conserved that it's like changing more rapidly yeah and in um in plants this hasn't been that much study so there's the idea that maybe they can have some functionality uh they might be the source for example for some of these small interfering rna mm -hmm. um, because they these small interfering rna they have to be similar to the gene or they have to match exactly the gene that they're regulating so a good source of it would be a, a, a copy of that gene that's not actually making any more the actual protein but apart from it can make an RNA that can regulate the original gene. Um, that's the idea that pseudogenes might not just be like fragments or leftovers from previous events, they might actually do something. And so that's in, in this paper, they looked at plants. Um, obviously, we selected it because it's in plants and not just worms, human and flies. Um, Such and disdain. <laughs> Plants, the, the the pinnacle of evolution are plants. Yeah, if you can't fix carbon, we don't care about you. Yeah, unless you're a cat. Yeah, cats and carbon fixing, two C's. We careful. <laughs> we need a T-shirt. <laughs> Can we have a? T we I only care for cats and carbon fixing organisms. Uh, yeah, it's a bit long. We can we can shorten it to cats and carbon fixation. And just a heart around it. Okay, sure. <laughs> a, a, sh a cat shaped heart? No, okay, we'll, we'll workshop this later. Later. Well, you'll find it in the shop. There will be a link to the shop where you can buy them. <laughs> Guys, send us your overpriced. ideas and drawings, please. We have no. You know. So, what's special about plants? They, they, they can fix carbon. They can fix carbon. But also, the genome duplication happens way more often than in animals. Do we know why that is? 
uh, for some reason it's more stable i didn't I, I didn't really look into for why it happens so much but if you look at for example leaf cells in in arabidopsis um the individual cells there they can have uh, several uh, copies of the whole genome in there so they exactly the they can have uh, i think up to eight times the the chromosome set in there then the in in crops we see that for example in wheat um it has six copies of the genome in it and it uh, works uh, happily and so you see that very often in plants that they can grow with multiple copy, uh, copies of the entire genome, which mm-hmm. also every time the genome is copied, all of the pseudogenes that are, exist already are copied and you give room for the existence of many more uh, pseudogenes because if you have a six times redundancy, you can mutate five of these genes and still have mm-hmm. a gene that codes for the protein that you need. So the just the capacity of having pseudogenes happening is much bigger in, in plants. Just as a side, like I mean, the the wheat example you use with the the six different genomes, I mean, this is like well, double set, like two sets of three. Yeah. Um, these came from three different ancestors, so yeah. they didn't look at a species like this, right? They're looking at something like Arabidopsis, where it just they, has your normal. They looked at um, in the experiments. They looked at seven species. Oh wow! Okay. So what they did now? So they they said. Um, we don't know what happens to pseudogenes in plants, and we ca- we are interested in just getting a general idea what what might be going on. It's a meta analysis. So, which species did they use them? So they used Arabidopsis, our mm-hmm. favorite lab rat. They used a uh, Brachypodium, uh, which is a grass. They used soybean. They used a Medicago, which is a type of legume um, that you also find on on like meadows. They used rice, poplar, and sorghum, which is a cereal. Okay, so they have a really nice range across all the different types of plants as well. They're not just all in one kind of family. There's like a lot of different things going on there. Yeah, whenever we look in in research, we try to understand if something is conserved across uh, evolution on an evolutionary scale. This is a good set to start looking. Mm -hmm. I mean, pretty much what's missing would be like unicellular algae. Um, and maybe some moss or some like yeah, non-vascular. Yeah, shout out to Fisco. I think some, some Fisco could be good in there, but yeah. Yeah, yeah but um, so this is a very nice uh, white set. So what they did then, after they selected their species, um, they looked at the genomic data of all of these seven species. Um, and I don't want to really go deep into the bioinformatics of it because I don't understand most of it. Um, but what they did uh, at the beginning, what you always do when you start uh, any bioinformatic analysis is they did some filtering and they filtered out repetitive regions uh, of the genomic data set, which are regions where you have the same set of nu- like sequence of nucleotides repeated again and again and again, which makes uh, some algorithms uh, give out wrong um, results. And that's why this is something you usually filter. And in the end, what they found uh, or what they used for their work is 5,000, uh, between 5,000 and uh, 7,000. 3,000 pseudogenes um, and depending on the species that they looked at. And if you compare that to the number of genes in Arabidopsis that we just talked about, uh, which was f- no, <laughs> 27,000, right? Yeah. 27,000 genes um, that are coding for proteins in Arabidopsis. Um, it's In some species you have uh, almost three times that um, just in pseudogenes, so in non-active genes. And they found the most of these pseudogenes in soybean and the least in Arabidopsis, and there's a weak correlation between the size of the genome and the number of pseudogenes that you find in there. And one of the things that I noted down here um, in, is one of the uh, conclusions that I draw there is that uh, um, there was a paleotetraploidization in soybeans some 13 million years ago. 
Okay, so tetrafluoridization means that there was the combining of two genomes, I guess, like say two sets of two. So tetra is four then. And um, paleo means it happened a long time ago, like paleontology. Yeah. <laughs> well done, English. That's that's what it means. Um, but I just <laughs> found it funny to, to stumble across this very long word. It's like almost like a German compound word. Beautiful. Yeah. So coming now to what they actually found when they looked at all of this. Um, so they, they found, a, uh, they looked at where do they find the pseudogenes on a map of the genome. And if you think of, uh, of the DNA, it's organized in chromosomes. And these uh, chromosomes uh, have some distinct features that then are also represented on the map. They have uh, sort of the ends of the chromosomes. And then they have a part where they cross, where they touch. Like so a, it's like an X and then the ends are kind of the, the forks of the X and you've got like the crossover point in the middle, yeah. which is where the centromere is. Yes. And in the centromeric region and at the caps, you have less recombination activity. So that okay. means when you have cell division and all the chromosomes, the two pairs, they align, then uh, crossing over happens. And this exchanges uh, stretches of DNA. And this is sort of what drives um, uh, evolution or mutations between generations. You remember this from your high school biology. Look under your notes, which say meiosis, and you'll see all this described very nicely. And so during this step, um, yeah, you have some areas that are more likely to have recombination happening and st areas that are less likely. And the less likely areas are the caps, sort of the end bits of the chromosome and the centromeric region. While in the middle, um, the chances are just higher that something changes. And now they looked where on this map um, they found all the pseudogenes on a chromosome. And in all species, they found that, uh, although I think they mostly looked in, in soybean, um, but I, um, some of the data suggests that it's also true in the other organisms. But in soybean, they had good data on the recombination frequency that um, the pseudogenes are found more often in areas where you have less recombination so that you find more pseudogenes at the caps and the centromeric region on a chromosome and less in the middle and this so, uh, indicates that these um, pseudogenes are not uh, functionally important because they whenever you have sort of genetic Basically, activity if, if they can be lost which happens in this crossing over like they can be like stuff lost and replaced with functional copies if they can be lost they will and if not yeah. they kind of hang around just because they can't be lost easily yeah. And the other thing they found is that they are very specific to the lineage. That, so um, the pseudogenes in Arabidopsis are very distinct from the pseudogenes in soybean, for example, mm -hmm. um, while other proteins are more, uh, more similar to each other. Like, which again suggests that they don't do anything, right? It's yeah. not like they're involved in something important like root formation, which all plants need. They're just like hanging yeah. around doing nothing. The next thing they found is that some of them are transcribed actively into RNA, although mm -hmm. they're pseudogenes and not um, technically active. But the older they get on an evolutionary scale, uh, the less likely this is to, uh, um, to happen. So these the pseudogenes sort of deteriorate over on an evolutionary timescale, mm -hmm. which again means or, or hints towards that they are not really that important because and they're kind of on their way out then basically they're just quietly exiting the building yeah so they they get copied they still have the sort of activity attached to them um, from being a real gene and then slowly they break down more and more and then get transcribed less and less um uh, but they could also show that uh, some of the pseudogenes are involved in the generation of some of these long non-coding rna and um so these, the, from that on, they hypothesize a little bit and they try to give sense to these pseudogenes. I had the impression because all of the other points to me tell, like, 
they exist and they, they exist because of all the, the um, genome duplications and other processes, but they are not really important, so they get slowly lost. But here they say they generate these long coding, non coding RNA and it might be an evolutionary source for uh, new regulatory elements. So if you take um, a functional gene and you copy it, you have sort of starting material to create a regulatory element from it. So mm -hmm. some of them might have that role, but it's sort of a, like coming through the backdoor role. Like they, um, but this we kind of have an idea of already from the literature that, that you can get this kind yeah. of new functionalization when you copy genes and... I mean, if you get degradation of the genes, you can also then have regulatory function. The way I understood is that this is a way for um, a plant cell to just get some sort of genetic material. It's, it's sort of anthropomorphizes the, the cell in a way that it actively does that. But in the scale of, of, of evolution, there is some the, the pseudogenes serve as sort of the building blocks that then can be by by chance can be modified into something functional and then mm -hmm. can be kept and if you would only have uh, functional genes you would reduce the chance of something happening randomly in the sort of non-active areas um, and there would be no way that there's a new regulatory element that could uh, arise because if every every single bit of rna would be directly protein coding or rna coding then you wouldn't you wouldn't have the room for random mutations that could give you new regulatory elements or maybe even eventually new genes because you can also imagine that a pseudogene can get reactivated by by chance if mm -hmm. the the premature stop codon gets inactivated and something else changed in the meantime you can get a new protein technically um so this was the <laughs> the first i would think is what the uh, importance of these pseudogenes is so they're not quite junk but they also don't seem to be that crucial for um for the plant survival so that's a paper on synergies <laughs> okay hmm. okay now um let me go back to the audio thing um we have our favorite segment <laughs> my favorite plant <laughs> that's horrible um, so my favorite plant this week is uh, Craterostigma pumilum, which I'm sure I'm saying wrong. Um, and actually, it's a little teaser because I'm going to talk about this a little bit more next week in my journal club. Um, I found it in relation to a paper I'm interested in, but then I tried Googling it and it's not on Wikipedia and there's very little known about it. Um, but basically, it's a plant that's originally found in Africa, and it actually looks a lot like a, one of these um, African violets mm -hmm. that you grow in your house, um, except it doesn't have very furry leaves. And okay, the leaves are a bit different, but it makes these kind of small bluey purple flowers. Um, and yeah, it looks quite nice, kind of normal, pretty pretty average little potted plant. Um, but it's, it's kind of amazing because it has this ability to get almost completely dry, like not as a seed, but like as an actual plant, the plant can dry up looks like it's wilting it looks like it's completely dead and then when you add water after some months of just like sitting there dry it'll come back to life again hmm. um and you might have already seen this with uh like the jericho rose um so this is one of these things that comes into a little ball and then it like folds out again when you add water and i find these just really fascinating these extremophile plants especially the ones that can live like in desert environments and just deal with the harshest like conditions that can be thrown at them and somehow have found a way to yeah. adapt to them so yeah 
yeah i'll do nice. a journal club on that one next week yeah that's uh that's a really nice looking plant i'm also, also fascinated with these external files because in the in the lab it's sometimes so easy to to mess up a plant by just not getting the watering right and sometimes they feel so delicate at least the ones that we use in the lab and that we want to have certain things like they they still survive if you don't water them right so outside in nature they would do fine and would but for us it feels like oh damn it they're they're messed up now yeah but i mean also like it's one of these things where like we've got this global warming happening we've got like we need more land where we can grow plants and there's not a lot more land so there's this idea of like trying to understand how these extremophile plants work and seeing if we can use Mm. the secrets that they hold and somehow teach our crop plants how to also be able to survive if there's a drought or if there's a flood or if there's too much salt without actually completely dying and and still give us seeds in the end that we can then eat like this is really something quite fascinating so i mean in australia we have this huge problem with drought of course because it's australia but also with salinity so always looking at how these different plants like have mechanisms to avoid just dying where other plants would die is is really fascinating it really is Nice. Yeah. Thank you for Craterostigma pumilium. Pumilum. Pumilum. I think he also said it wrong, but we are terrible at pronouncing Latin names. I think yeah. that's a take-home message. So for our little thing where we have bits and pieces that we find somewhere on the internet, I brought today um, photo- pho- uh, photographs. Now you can't even pronounce regular <laughs> words anymore. Soidoji. <laughs> Soido. Uh, images of uh, of. Images of plants, um, and if you look at them, I, I, this is this is a visual medium, obviously. But you'll find a link in the show notes, um, and I want to, and you should click on that because it's really. Interesting. I want to describe what I see. It looks a little bit like a marigold, maybe, or some sort of flower. But it, it's like a flower where you've taken the film and you've taken a photo of a flower, and then you've taken a photo of the night sky. So it's got like this starscape kind of like expressed from the flower maybe and also the colors are completely off if it's if i think this might even be marigold because it's one of the plants that the photographer um, took pictures of um, but the the center is purple the leaves are this sort of uh, fluorescent greenish those are, those color are the, petals. Uh, the petals yeah um, and this is many of the images oh super pretty they, they have like maybe forget-me-nots as well could that be forget-me-nots that could be yeah um, they're blue but I think the blue is the light so they look like from the movie Avatar I don't know I haven't seen it it's one of the best movies you're shaming me publicly now no it's a terrible movie um, but in the movie they have this like out, outer worldly flora and it's all it's like blue, blue I, I know that everything is blue that's yeah, like the, the take home message of Avatar <laughs> it, it's right? Pocahontas in blue to be honest um, okay still um, better than Lucy <laughs> don't watch Lucy guys um, so yeah, this is uh, these these pictures of flowers. You should really have a look at them. And the way they were created is uh, with a technique called. Wait, I have to look up the the word that I say it right. Um, uh, UV induced fluorescence of flowers. So mm-hmm. he with. <gasps> It's it's for the the insects and the birds to see. So they're showing how how the flowers send signals to the to whoever's pollinating them to say, hey, look at me, come check me out. I'm ready to be. Yeah. Okay, so the first photo that Yoram showed me it had two two flowers in it, 
and one of them had like all these star sparkles on it and the other one didn't have as much and i'm not sure is that just the angle or is that like actually something that's changing with the age of the flower I, it could be it could be either um this is a hobby photographer who just explored this technology so he didn't really go into the science behind it um this is an article on national geographic um and i i read through it and th this guy just goes outside and uh, with a uv light and then looks at at different plants that he finds that's why the, a lot of them are very common plants that he, he's uh, looking at um, and then when he finds something interesting just with his UV light he sets them up in a studio um, then shines UV light on them and then filters it out for the camera so it's not UV reflective light like sometimes you see this infrared images where you just use a filter that blocks er uh, everything but infrared mm -hmm. and then you get these white leaves and uh, very eerie skies and so on um, and he didn't do that here for UV but he filtered out the UV and just measured the um, fl uh, fluorescence, the, the, so the light that the plants emit when UV light hits them. So they absorb some of the UV light's energy, mm -hmm. um, put it into a lower wavelength than, than UV with less energy and reflect it back. And this is what you see here. So This is super pretty. Guys, go check out the link in the show notes. It's really amazing. Yeah, and then the, the, the problem with this is the, the fluorescence is really weak. So it takes them, uh, the, the exposure times around 20 to 30 minutes per plant. Um, so it just shows that they have like all the, these plant pigments and colors, they have much more than just the visible wavelengths that we can mm -hmm. perceive, but they, they fluorescent in a certain uh, range. Um, and yeah, these, these uh, images, I found them really fascinating. And um, yeah, that's why you should go have a look. You find in the show notes, you find a link to this article on uh, National Geographic. Once again, proving that humans are shit and that plants are awesome. <laughs> That's a nice way to end this episode. I have I have something else quickly. Oh, yeah. Can I? Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure, Or we could sure. also end on your review. Okay. Um, this is just a something. I'm not sure how I found it actually originally, but it's a um, letter, a nature letter. And it's looking at the impact of team size on um, how science mm -hmm. is done. So it's not specifically related to plants as far as I can tell, but basically they looked at over 65 million papers and also patents and software and things that came from like uh, science and technological research over a period of 60 years. So from the 50s, 1954 to 2014 and looked at how the amount of people on the team, so the number of authors on the paper basically, affects the, the, the quality of work mm -hmm. that comes out. Um, and you can go and read the, the paper yourself, but basically the take-home message is that larger groups tend um, to kind of develop existing ideas, whereas smaller groups tend to disrupt science and technology. And it doesn't mean that they like break things. It means that they have sort of new ideas and opportunities. And um, the authors of this paper mentioned that both of these are really important. So the disruption is is super important because you get new ideas, but it comes at a high cost. Um, and of course, you then need people to actually follow up on these new ideas. So it's really the take-home message is that we need to have diversity in the different sizes of teams. And um, this is something that we discuss a little bit in science because funding is so competitive now that it, it can s select for having much larger team sizes and money going to already established scientists. So it's just, again, another reminder, in case we haven't got already an <laughs> a few of those, that diversity is really important in science, not just about men and women, not just about like different types of people, different like personalities and different races and everything like this, but also structural, diversity. structural diversity as well yeah. within the size of the group. And I thought like, nice. 
Diversity is key, guys. That's your take-home message. Yeah, it reminds me of um, something that I've I've got to know in the context of it, uh, of, of workshops and and designing, coming up with new ideas, where you have the difference between sitting in a room with a lot of people and you sort of do brainstorming with many people, or if you have like a small focus group that develops one strategy and. Both of them can lead to some some results, but probably the large group that's of brainstorming will sort of stay close to things they already know and have sort of a consensus between them. Mm -hmm. While the small group, they uh, th it's more likely that they come up with a, a new idea that is outside of sort of the feel good area. Because the more people you have, this the the sort of more f the the feel good area is then different because you might have more different influences on it. Mm -hmm. um, And so it's it's fun to see that reflected there in this study as well because um, this is some some of the core things in in design workshops that you do that you say have small teams that work on one specific topic then you get these disruptive ideas and you get something that's uh, that's new and um, yeah and develop work in big teams if you want to just develop it further which it just sounds like it's it's less worth it but it's not like it's as you said it's equally important both of them are really important mm -hmm. to to have good science and there were some other things here so they also found like the smaller teams they like delved more deeply into the past when they were doing their research so you can go and check out the original article it's called large teams develop and small teams disrupt science and technology and it's in nature letters um from Wu, Wu et al um from the last month i think so in maybe in january yeah And again, you find that in the show notes where you find also all other information um, that we presented in this uh, episode of the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, we're looking forward to uh, have you tune in again in two weeks. Um, is it the schedule that we aim mm -hmm. for? And uh, if you want to, in the meantime, you uh, can't wait for more news about plants. We have something for you. Do we? Our website, oh, plantsandpipettes.com, yeah. where we have, we have <laughs> where every week we publish new articles uh, on uh, the world of molecular plant biology, mm. and also you can follow us on Facebook, um, where we are, I think Facebook slash plants and pipettes, or you just search for plants and pipettes. Um, that would be cool. We we are uh, continuously growing our readership there, and it would be really cool if we could have you there as well. We're on Instagram at plants and pipettes. And we are on Twitter at Plants Pipettes because the end was too long for Twitter. And um, if you have any suggestions of things that you want us to talk about on the blog, any ideas, like please just like shoot me a, a message on or ask a message on any of those media and we'll do our best to um, start writing some stuff for you. And thank you for listening and hear you next time. Goodbye. Bye. And next time we will be talking about how plants open and close their stomata. And I'll be talking about a desert plant and how it deals with drying up and then resurrecting again, coming back from the dead. See you next time. See you next time.